Sorry to break it up. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. I know we're going to go to Luke, but I want you to turn to John first, because if you know anything about John, John is not one of the synoptic Gospels. The synoptic is some big invented word to confuse people. It just means similar. Um, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a similar structure in how they just kind of tell about the life of Christ and and uh, his death and resurrection. But John structures his gospel around seven major miracles of Jesus. But at the end, he pretty much is the same as Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, he gives us some insight into things that happened leading up to Jesus' death, which the other ones don't, quite a bit more information. And so I just want to point out some things as kind of background and context for our text this morning. So if you have your Bibles and you're, you're at the Gospel of John, chapter 13, we're going to look at um, verse 33 to begin with, and then I'll just be pointing out some verses, and you'll see as we go through here why I point out the verses I'm pointing out, because they all have a similar thing. Jesus says in John 13, 33, little children, I am writing, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you where I am going, you cannot come. Now look down at verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Look down at John chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me and my father's house or many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Look down at John 14, verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me. But you will see me because I live. You will live also. Look down at verse 28. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would love. You would have rejoiced because I go to the father for the father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of the world is coming and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the father, I do exactly as the father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. And it is at that time they leave um, and start heading uh, apparently for the garden of Gethsemane. They, they leave the upper room and now they're kind of heading for the garden, of course, uh, Jesus along the way tells them the little parable about I am the vine, you are the branches in chapter 15. Now look at uh, chapter 16 of John, verse 1. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when the, their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me and none of you asked me where are you going but because i have said these things to you sorrow has filled your heart but i tell you the truth it is to your advantage that i go away for if i do not go away the helper will not come to you but if i go i will send him to you look down at verse 16 a little while and you will no longer see me and again a little while and you will see me look down at verse 28 I came forth from the father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the father. And finally, look at verses 32 and 33. Behold, an hour is coming and has already come 
for you to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulations, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Okay, well, this is our background. Now let's look at Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 47. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He has been praying for maybe up to even three hours. His disciples have fallen asleep three different times. He has uh, gone to them and exhorted them saying, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Of course, Judas has left uh, when they were in the upper room. Satan entered him. Judas left. Judas has gone to the religious leaders. They, in turn, have gone to other religious leaders. And those religious leaders have now um, gone and got some Roman soldiers and other people. And the great mob is coming, being led by Judas to the place where Judas is pretty sure Jesus will be in the garden. Because apparently that is where he often prayed. So uh, when the disciples were sleeping, now we know why. John tells us very clearly that Jesus pounded into them, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, yeah, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. And if you don't realize that, I'm leaving. You know, I mean, he tells them over and over because they're just, they're not getting it. But they've got that now. They don't quite understand that Jesus is dying and that's why he's leaving. But they understand he's leaving and they're grieved about it. And that is why Luke just throws out there this little comment in Luke twenty-two forty-five that they kept falling asleep because they were so grieved from sorrow. So with all that. We come to our text. Jesus has just told them for the third time. We know that from Mark's account. uh, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And while he is giving them this very exhortation, our text begins. Look at Luke 22 verse 47 and follow along in your Bibles as I read. And while he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came and the one called Judas, one of the 12 was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? And those who were around him saw what was going to happen. And they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said to him, stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and the elders who had come against him, have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, did you not lay, you did not lay hands on me, but the hour and power of darkness is yours. So uh, then we get into verses 54 to 62, which we've already looked at. I'll just tell you what happened there in case you weren't here. Um, uh, All the disciples run away and uh, Peter then holds back. Uh, He sees the mob grab Jesus, arrest him, and they take him to the high priest's house. Uh, The high priest has a courtyard in the middle of his. He must have had a very giant house and a gate that entered into that courtyard. And somehow Peter got into that inner courtyard. Jesus is being tried. He's being abused. We don't know if Peter had sight of him the whole time or not. However, as Peter is huddling around the fire in the darkness of the morning, as it, the sun isn't even coming up to begin with, people see his face in the flickering light and they say, hey, you are with him. And Peter denies the Lord. And then it happens again and again. And finally, he denies the Lord with cursing and oath, uh, just vehemently saying, I do not know the man. It is at that very point that the cock crows and Peter then, Jesus is either being moved or he has eyesight of Jesus or something, but they connect eyes. Jesus looks at Peter. Peter looks at the Lord, remembers what the Lord said and is just broken, weeps bitterly and runs away. So then we read this in verse 63 of Luke 22. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him and they blindfolded him and were asking him saying, prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. 
All right. From our text this morning, I just want to point out three uh, different ways Jesus gave himself up for you so that you can marvel at Jesus's love for sinners and so that you will be motivated to live your life for his glory. Pray with me. Father, I just ask that this morning as we look at your word, as we hear you speak to us, that our hearts would be changed, our lives would be changed, that we would marvel at the demonstration of love that Christ displayed in willingly going to death, even death on the cross for us unworthy sinners. I pray that as we look at these things, our hearts would be touched, our our hearts encouraged, our hearts motivated, Father, that we would leave here changed so that we would better live for your glory. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. The first point is Jesus was betrayed with a kiss for you. Now, I told you that I was going to emphasize the sovereignty of God. And we have already talked about this, but I just want to point this out, that Jesus knew Judas was a bad apple. We know this from texts like John 6, verse 64, where Jesus says, but there are some of you who do not believe for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. So he knew from the beginning who was going to betray him. A few verses later, later in, in John chapter six, verse 70, we read, did I myself not choose you the 12 and yet one of you is a devil. Jesus knew what was going to happen because he planned what was going to happen. It was all part of his sovereign plan and his design to bring about his own death. Speaking of his death in John chapter 10, verse 18, which Tim read earlier, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from the father. So Jesus is not a helpless victim. He is not being preyed upon by wicked men and they are not overpowering him. Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior and Redeemer, who was born of a virgin and lived a perfect life so that he could die for the sins of the world, has as his intention, as his plan, as his goal to give himself as a sacrifice for sinners. We have seen throughout the Gospel of Luke that at times when people were really angry with him, Jesus escaped. He eluded their grasp. He He didn't allow them to kill him at other times when they wanted to, like pitch him off a cliff. At other times, he told people after healing them, don't tell anybody because he didn't want too much fanfare. We've seen him working, pulling the strings. And even in the previous, this previous week, now that his death is approaching, he does provoke them openly in public by exposing their religious hypocrisy, by exposing their sin and their error and their false religiosity and this has made them so angry that now they're intent on killing him which is jesus's plan so he knew judas had departed jesus knew that satan had entered him he knew that judas needed enough time to go to the religious leaders find them wherever they were say hey we've got Uh, an opportunity to arrest Jesus. I think he's going to be in the garden. And so they then mobilize and they get the Pharisees, as we're going to see. They get the elders, the temple police, um, the the whole Sanhedrin. They get uh, quite a few Roman soldiers, a cohort of Roman soldiers. And uh, the slave of the high priest we know is there. They collect all these people and then they got to go to the garden. So Jesus, knowing this, stops at the garden and he prays. He prays and he prays and he prays. And we know after the first time, he kept saying, could you not watch with me an hour? Pray that you may not enter the temptation, Mark tells us, which may indicate since he went to them three times, he possibly would have been praying for three hours. You're thinking, man, why is he spending so much time? Because he's giving them an opportunity to get there and arrest him. He's delaying so that they can come and arrest him. Then comes our text. Look at verse 47. And while he was still speaking, he just told them, pray that you may not enter temptation for the third time. Behold, 
a crowd came and the one called Judas, one of the 12 was preceding them. Judas was leading the mob. Now, when you think about that, it's just hard to even cope with. I mean, the only thing that makes it just tolerably culpable is the fact that Judas at this point is possessed by Satan. And you say, well, why was Judas possessed by Satan? Because Judas, for three years, never repented of his sin and gave his life to Christ. This is Judas, one of the twelve, called by Jesus, trained by Jesus, who watched Jesus do many miracles This is the Judas who lived with Jesus for three years, who was trusted and given the money box. And now he is possessed by his father, the devil, in his leading an angry mob right to Jesus. And you can just imagine Judas, you know, walking in front of the, you know, Slave of the high priest and the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, you know, the elders, all these very high officials and behind them a group of soldiers. And he's like his own little military general with his chin stuck out there thinking he's some big thing because he's going to lead them to Jesus. William Henderson describes Judas, quote, a shameless, disgusting quizzling he had become. A wretched turncoat, one who for the paltry sum of 30 pieces of silver was delivering over to the enemy, the greatest benefactor whose feet ever trod this earth, even the mediator, both God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ, end quote. Judas, one of the privileged 12, is leading Jesus's enemies right to him. And you can picture the soldiers with their official garb, with their helmets, their swords. You can see the chief priests and the Pharisees with their clubs and their cudgels in hand, uh, white knuckle, anger on all of their faces. Look towards the end of verse 47 and he, Judas, approached Jesus to kiss him. The word kiss can also be translated a holy kiss or a kiss of love. In that culture, uh, a kiss on the cheek was a sign of affection, of love, of goodwill. Brings to my mind Proverbs 27 verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Uh, A friend may wound you for your good, but sometimes enemies will give you a kiss in order to deceive you and do you harm. And this is the kind of kiss that Judas is now delivering to Jesus. It was the kiss of an enemy, a kiss of betrayal. Look at verse 48. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? You know, Jesus' words are, must have just been like a dagger to Judas. Are you really betraying me to my enemies with a sign of affection, love, and goodwill? And notice Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. This is one of Jesus' loftiest titles. And Jesus uses it here to further drive the the treachery of Judas home to Judas's heart. It comes from Daniel chapter 7 verse 13, one of the most famous messianic texts in the Old Testament where Daniel writes, I kept looking in the night vision and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. And so here you have the son of man coming up to the ancient of days. And so Jesus uses the title to further shame Judas. Not only are you betraying me and betraying me with a kiss, you're betraying me, the son of man. 
Of course, Judas's betrayal has been memorialized as a Judas kiss. One commentator described it as a kiss of death. Still another, since Satan was in control of Judas, as a kiss from hell. Keep in mind that Satan is possessed, has possessed Judas right now and has come and kissed Jesus on the cheek. Matthew 26, verses 48 through 50, gives us more detail. It says, Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whoever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. And immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. And they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Jesus gave himself into the hands of wicked men. And you know, when you look at this, you say, okay, this is, this is painful. But how is this for instruction and training and righteousness? Well, when we read these things, it should affect our soul. It should affect our affections for Christ. Because we see here his willingness to give himself over into the hands of wicked men for us. We, we should be motivated to serve him, to suffer for him, to stand up for him, to even be willing to die for him. Maybe you're sitting out there and you have had thoughts, you know, I need to read my Bible. I need to get involved in a Bible study. I need to come to Sunday school. I need to get involved in a ministry. I should start giving to the Lord. But, you know, I'm just too busy. No, you know why you're too busy. There's somebody in charge of you that's making you too busy. And that's you. And you use it as an excuse to postpone and postpone and make excuses. You make your, I've seen people who say things like, well, I just don't have time to do my homework and read one chapter of the Bible over the course of seven days. Of course, they had plenty of time to watch 50 hours of TV, but they can't read one chapter of the Bible. If that is you, you need to look to Christ. You need to look to Christ and see him as the lamb of God, giving himself over to be slaughtered for you, to save you so that you could live in his presence. And when you sit there with your newspaper, with your television, with your computer, frittering away the most precious commodity God has given you time and do nothing for the Lord and for his glory, if our hearts are not stones and our consciences are not seared as with a branding iron, it should create in us a love, a gratitude, a thankfulness that drive us to do his will. Believer, lover of Christ, if indeed you truly are, talk to the Lord about it. Can can you thank him and praise him and sing songs to him about all that he has done for you and yet do little or nothing for him? The engine in the heart of every Christian which drives them to serve the Lord in a way that glorifies him is love. And the fuel for that engine is to look at what Christ has done for you. Jesus was betrayed with a kiss for you. And believer, your life is quickly passing away. And today and only today is the day for action. Don't kid yourself into thinking that someday you're going to get your act together. And someday you'll start following the Lord and start giving and serving and going to Sunday school class. And really get serious about learning the Bible. Today is that day. Because tomorrow may not come. The path to hell is paved with a thousand good intentions. Look to Christ Fall in love with him and serve him. Secondly, Jesus gave himself over to evil for you. Look at verse 49. When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Now we saw from John's gospel, Jesus repeatedly told the disciples that 
he was going to leave. And that is why um, Jesus was preparing them for his departure. We looked at this in verses 35 and 36 where he says, From now on, I want you to take some money with you. From now on, you need to take a sack for provision. From now on, get a sword for protection. And so Peter has done inventory, verse 38, and said, Lord, we have two swords. Jesus is saying, when I leave you and you're out and about, if wicked ruffians come upon you, I'm not going to be there to protect you. He's not saying resist the governing authorities or start a militia or go to war. And so now Peter's thinking, well, maybe this is the time. He just talked about swords and we've got two. Should we strike? He has just heard, he's seen Judas leading the mob, and he's probably wondering, why is Judas leading the mob? And then he hears Jesus say to Judas, friend. Think about that. Friend. Do what you have come for. And Peter finally realizes, Judas is the betrayer. And they are here to arrest the master. And that's why he says, shall we strike with the sword? Is this the time for battle? But being himself, Peter didn't wait for an answer. It's just like him. Fearful, wanting to protect Jesus, adrenaline flowing. He draws out his sword. He takes a wild swing at the closest person to him, which was the slave of the high priest, who probably had some pious little smirk on his face. And look at verse 50. And one of them, and we know it's Peter from the other gospel accounts, struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Stop there. Now think with me for a moment. Ears are on the sides of people's heads, right? And Peter could have just done a big downward slash and thrust. But if that was the case, he would have chopped off his ear and then wounded the guy in between his neck and his shoulder. But that didn't happen. This tells us that what Peter did is do the baseball bat approach and he swung horizontally. The guy saw his life flash before his eyes and tilted his head and off came his ear. This tells us Peter was trying to decapitate the guy and missed. And there's a lesson here. It's a lesson of failing to wait upon the Lord. Failing to seek counsel of rushing into the battle without the Lord's consent. Know anybody who's ever done that? I mean, I wince to think of all the times I've done that. Have you ever just kind of like thought, you know, this is like good, let's let's do it. And then afterwards you think, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I whatever? How much harm and hurt do the pages of history record that were caused by good men and good women acting with good intentions, but not having prayed, not having sought the scriptures, not having discerned the will of the Lord and gone out into the flesh to cause more harm than good? How often do we get impatient and like Saul offer sacrifice instead of just waiting a little bit longer until the priest came? May we all learn from Peter's mistake by acting slowly. By being quick to prayer. By being thorough to research the word of God. Before rushing off into battle. Remember when Israel was not trusting the Lord. God let them lose battle after battle after battle. You've got to have the Lord with you. Look at verse 51, but Jesus answered and said, stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. J.C. Rowell notes that this miracle, quote, is the only instance in the gospels of our Lord healing a fresh wound caused by external violence. It is a striking instance of a miracle worked on an enemy unasked for without faith in the heart of the person healed and without any apparent thankfulness for the cure end quote 
You need to gather the scene in your mind here. Peter asked the question, but before he gets the answer, he pulls out his sword and swings at the slave of the high priest who's standing in front of him. The high priest then ducks. The ear pops off his head. He screams, ah, and grabs his, where his ear was, blood oozing out through his fingers, looking down on the ground, and there's his ear. But before a full-on battle can ensue, because surely all the Roman soldiers then pulled out their swords, ready to go to war, Jesus says, stop. No more of this. And in kindness and in gentleness, he pacifies the crowd. He does not want Peter's rash actions to be used as an accusation against him so that the religious leaders can say, well, he was... Hold up with a bunch of violent and evil men. Come here. We'll show you the slave of the high priest. His ear is gone. So Jesus steps towards the slave and touches his ear and instantly he heals him. The slave sees his own blood in his fingers that the pain is gone. And when he reaches up to feel the gash, his ear is totally restored. He's probably confused for a moment and then remembers that Jesus is the enemy and he has come with the soldiers and all the rest to arrest him. Peter and the other disciples, though, are probably confused because they're thinking, Lord, what do you want us to do? You don't want us to fight? Now all the soldiers have their swords drawn and the Jews have their clubs and cudgels raised and they're scared. Matthew 26, verses 52 and 54 gives us more insight than Jesus said to them, put your sword back into its place for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say it must happen this way? Jesus says to the disciples, listen, you pull out your sword, your two swords right now. You're going to go against these trained Roman soldiers. They're going to cut you down. You're going to die. Put them away. It is at this point we learn from Matthew 26, verse 56, that the disciples, seeing the soldiers at ready, the angry crowd at ready with their weapons raised, all get scared and they flee. They, they fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and they all run away, abandon Jesus, and leave him alone with his enemies. Ryle makes an excellent observation when he says, quote, the lesson for us is deeply instructive. To suffer patiently for Christ is far more difficult than to work actively. To sit still and endure calmly is far harder than to fight a battle. Crusaders will always be found in more, num- more numerous than martyrs. The passive graces of religion are far rarer and precious than active graces. Work for Christ may be done from many spurious motives, from excitement, from emulation, from a party spirit, or from love of praise. Suffering for Christ will seldom be endured from any but one motive, and that motive is the grace of God, end quote. This is so true. How much easier is it to be excited with a group of people and go, yeah, yeah, let's run into the battle, let's die on the hill. See, that's pretty easy compared to holding still and letting them abuse you. Jesus told the disciples right before they abandoned him in Matthew 26, 53, or do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus is saying, listen, I'm God. The angels do what I say. I could say, Father, could you dispatch 72,000 angels? No problem. Army. Angels can fight too. And I'm sure the angels were standing in heaven waiting eagerly to defend Christ as well, but it was not the time. Jesus didn't need defending. He needed to make atonement for sins. 
He didn't need protection. They needed protection. They were the ones who were headed from hell, headed for hell, and who were going to experience Jesus' own wrath, and so Jesus needed to protect them from him and his justice. John's account reveals another amazing detail about Jesus' ability to protect himself. In John chapter 18, verses 3 through 9, right before Peter draws out his sword and cuts off the slave's ear, John says this, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Who do you seek? They answered, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he, and Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. I love that. Therefore, he again asked them, whom do you seek? And I'm sure this time they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. When Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me. I lost not one. Judas, the chief priests, the elders, some scribes, some Pharisees, a part of a cohort of Roman soldiers are feeling pretty high and mighty. And they're a little mob being paraded there by the traitor Jesus or Judas to capture Jesus as some sort of animal. They go, we're going to catch him in the garden. We're going to capture him. We're going to arrest him. And then we're going to take him out. And then Jesus, when he looks at them, the whole angry mob, all armed to the teeth, all he says is the ineffable tetragrammaton, the unutterable four-letter name, the great I am, the ego ami, I am. And they're blown backwards and fall to the ground. Does Jesus need protection? Hardly. Just uttering the name. Knock them to the ground. And Jesus is standing and they are on the ground stunned wondering what has just happened to them. They're like ants that have been flicked with the finger of God. Like flies blown by the hurricane. They have no idea who they are dealing with. Or better, they have no idea who's dealing with them. They're just insects under the hand of God Almighty. Look at verse 52. And when Jesus said... Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers in the temple of the temple and the elders who had come against him. Stop here. Notice the people who are mentioned, chief priests and officers of the temple. This is the temple guard and the elders, the whole Sanhedrin's here. This was no small crowd. Judas was also present. The slave of the high priest was present. John mentions Roman cohort and Pharisees as well. Jesus is alone now in the midst of an angry mob. And look at the middle of verse 52. Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? Jesus, of course, never broke the law and he never harmed anyone. He wasn't a dangerous criminal, some sort of homicidal maniac that that needed to be restrained by force. His followers never did any harm to anyone until just very recently that Jesus remedied that. So Jesus says, listen, why are you, you armed to the teeth and come against me? Is this some sort of criminal? And Jesus then says, while I was with you in daily in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me. And Jesus makes these questions in such a way, he crafts them so that they all have to examine their own hearts. They're all thinking, well, why are, why did we come all armed to the teeth? What are we scared of? How come we didn't arrest him? Since all the week, Previous, he was standing in the temple all day long, teaching and preaching, talking to them. There's a reason. 
he was innocent. He was innocent and they knew he was innocent. And so by asking them these questions, they're all forced to look at their heart to see that they, in fact, are now the sinners. They are the lawbreakers. They are the violators. And that's why they have paid Judas to betray Jesus in a non-public location. Of course, they don't answer Jesus's questions. But Luke gives us the reason in Luke 20, verse 19, they feared the people. They were man pleasers. They knew Jesus was innocent. And remember that anger is the seed of murder. That's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. Remember, he talked about being angry with your brother and even calling him a fool is enough to be cast into the fiery hell. And man, they are hot. They are, they are furious. Why? Because Jesus has exposed them repeatedly as religious hypocrites and done it in public. And they just can't wait to just eradicate him. And consider that Jesus is still doing them good. By asking these questions, both to Judas and to the mob and religious leaders, he is giving them an opportunity to see their sin, that they might repent of their sin and believe in him. Even at this time, when they're there to take him away to kill him, they're still being shown mercy by Christ. Look at the middle of verse 53 where Jesus says, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. The English Standard Version and the New King James Version read, this is your hour and the power of darkness. The New International Version reads, this is your hour when darkness reigns. Please note that Jesus up to this point had restrained evil, restrained The forces of darkness. Because he's sovereign over the situation. Now he's giving them permission to have their way with him. Not only that, notice that the permission is a limited space of time. He uses this hour. It's not a literal hour. He's just saying this time period I'm giving you to do your worst to me. I'm going to allow wickedness kind of some unrestrained freedom here to do their mischief. But their freedom, of course, is limited for a time. And from the perspective of man, Jesus at this point was just overcome by superior forces. Evil men captured him. There was a whole mob. He was abandoned by his his friends and he was left alone in the garden surely they just have come upon him they've overcome him and and now as i think albert schweitzer said the wheel of his his of of providence is now going to crush him to death and he's just this hopeless helpless victim that we get god's perspective of the situation in john 17 1 where jesus is Praying his high priestly prayer that night in the garden. John records part of what he prayed during that three hour time period. And Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. That is God's perspective. God's perspective is that Jesus now sovereign and in control has given the powers of darkness, the freedom to do with him as they please that he might be glorified and that he might glorify the father. That's what's going on. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, when he says, Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And you know what it goes on to say? And therefore God highly exalted him. So in other words, Jesus, by humbling himself, is going to glorify the Father. And so what we see in the text is really the triumph of Jesus' humility. We see the triumph of his submission to the Father. We see his triumph and his dogged determination to die for those who hate him. For wicked men. For their good and the Father's glory. 
He went to the cross without a fight, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears. He did not open his mouth. Believer, when you encounter trials in your life, when you are suffering difficulties, remember they are temporary. And that if you know Jesus Christ, glory awaits in Emmanuel's land. Third, Jesus was mocked and beaten for you. Look down at verse 63. Remember, this is after Jesus is arrested. Taken to the house of the high priest. The disciples are scattered. Peter, having ran away, weeping bitterly because he denied the Lord three times. And Luke says in verse 63, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him. And they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying, Many other things against him blaspheming. It's difficult when you read this. I mean, as we're just going into the, the jaws of this whole thing. To just, to just read it. It's painful. And yet, you need to read it. And you need to think about it. Because it's good for you. It's like taking your medicine, your cod liver oil it's good for you why because it makes you thankful that jesus would suffer this for you it humbles you thinking that jesus would suffer this for you it helps you to have courage to suffer for his namesake when you're thinking I should say something. You know, Jesus did this for me. Surely I could be scoffed out by my friends, maybe. It instills in us a holy zeal and anger and sense of justice for the holiness of God and the glory of his name so that we don't cower when we should speak and act for his namesake. I mean, we too want to pick up the sword and we want to flail, but we need to remember that the weapons of our warfare are not physical weapons. They're spiritual weapons for the destruction of fortresses, for ideas. Our weapons are words. Our weapons are a godly life. Our weapons are prayer. And this is why we are told to remember these things when we celebrate communion, because it does us good to look at what Jesus did for us. Jesus was sinless, and yet the text says they mocked him. They derided him. They scorned him. They verbally tore into him. They were abusing their own creator. Jesus never did evil to anyone, and yet they beat him. Matthew and Mark say they took their fists and hit him in the face and slapped him in the face. Though Jesus was without sin, they Bit in his face. It was the hour Jesus granted the powers of darkness to have their way with him. And they just unleashed their fury and their malice and their hatred towards him. They're just like starving vultures just pecking at a carcass. They're just after him. R. Kent Hughes describes the event. Religion is always a good for a joke among godless men and especially for self-proclaimed prophets. The grim irony was that their abuse fulfilled Jesus's own prophetic words. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit upon him, flog him. And kill him, Luke 18.32. The irony was further compounded because his prophetic powers had just been vindicated in the preceding event when Peter denied him three times. Precisely as Jesus had predicted. Now the torture had begun and Jesus stood in regal silence, dripping spittle and blood, end quote. Mark, in his account, tells us that they knew that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. So they blindfolded him. And they struck him in the face and said, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? It's one thing to see the blow coming and then to brace yourself for it. But to be blindfolded, you can't see it coming. It just strikes while you're relaxed. It's a form of terrorism. They're terrorizing Jesus. They're trying to make his last moments in this world a living hell. 
They're just drawing out his death. They're making it as miserable as it can be. But with every insult, with every slap, with every blow and cruelty, Jesus is bearing our sin. He's absorbing our sin. He is taking our place. He is suffering what we should suffer. He is being the lamb that is led to the slaughter. And though it may appear that Satan and evil men are in control, we must remember the words of Isaiah and Isaiah 53, that it was the Lord who was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. God put him there. Jesus put himself there. He was betrayed with a kiss for you. He gave himself over to evil men for you. He was mocked and beaten for you. And as Paul reminds us in Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If Jesus is willing to do this for us, of course, he'll do anything else because he loves unworthy sinners. He, he did not come to save righteous people, but to call sinners to repentance. Are you a sinner? Do you know you are a sinner? Do you know that you have sinned against a holy God and you deserve hell? Then Christ died for you. Christ suffered for you. Call upon the name of the Lord, all the ends of the earth, and he will save you. He will not reject you. If you have not turned your life to Christ, do it today. For there is a sacrifice, a sufficient sacrifice that has been made on your behalf. God became a man and he died in your place so that you through faith in him could receive the free gift of eternal life because of what Jesus did for you. Let's pray. Father, we are glad that we have these gruesome words before us. This heinous account, this great crime recorded in the pages of your perfect word. Words that grieve our heart as we see Jesus being so sorely abused and beaten. And Father, we know that they're recorded here so that our hearts would be softened and humbled. So that there would be moved to praise. So that we would know the depth of your love for us. And that we would see that we indeed are unworthy sinners. But Father, Christ is a great Savior. And He came to pay the penalty we couldn't pay for ourselves. So that we, through faith in Him, could receive the free gift of eternal life. Father, for those here who don't know the Lord Jesus, may they right now turn and believe and be saved. For that is why Jesus came. May they give glory to you by giving glory to Christ, by receiving the free gift of eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.